The latest from 7 News with Angela Cox. Good evening and welcome tonight. Found alive, AJ's incredible survival, new details on his condition. COVID surge, the likely New South Wales peak revealed what it means for hospitals. Victoria's vaccine rollout back on track. The good news tonight. And a royal scandal, fresh claims around Prince Charles live to London. But first, a family's prayers have been answered tonight. Three-year-old autistic boy AJ Elfalak is safe and sound in the care of his mum and hospital staff after a three-night ordeal. This was the first sighting of AJ finally found in bushland just 470 metres from the family home in the New South Wales Hunter region, drinking water from a creek. We don't know yet if he just wandered off or was abducted and returned. But as you can imagine, his loved ones were overwhelmed with emotion after learning he was okay. Here's how it unfolded. Stand by, stand I've got the boy. i just got to get OBS on the... Get on the fire and get on the PA and tell them. I'm just going to get on the PA and try and guide the SES crew in. AJ! AJ, look at him, mommy! AJ! Good boy, mommy! Tom Hartley has been in putty with the family over the past few days and joins me. Tom, what a relief for AJ's relatives and those involved in the search. Oh, Angie, it was something that I think a lot of people had uh, almost lost uh, sight of or lost hope of. The thought that little AJ could have survived in such cruel conditions for, for four days and three nights with temperatures getting down, you know, below 10 degrees. It was raining at times. It was just something that, you know, having spoken to a lot of his relatives, well, they say they, you know, they didn't lose hope, but they were certainly uh, praying for a miracle. They say they, uh, last night they got together, they collectively prayed for a miracle and and definitely that miracle was delivered today. I've been in the bush for four days, no sleep, night and day as you've seen us. We didn't stop. He's clinging, as soon as he heard his mum's name, he opened his eyes, looked at her and fell asleep. Thank you everyone. Thank you everyone. Thanks God. First thanks God. Thank you whoever pray for us. Thank you to every single person involved. I can't thank you enough. You have no idea. This has been a living nightmare for us. We haven't eaten, we haven't slept. Thank you to every Australian that was praying because miracles do come true. Oh, well, on, at least we can sleep properly tonight. I thought you weren't going to see him again. Tell you the truth, I thank God, man. There's God answered our prayers, eh? Tom, just so much emotion out there. What was it like as it unfolded? Well, Angie, it was something that, uh, as a journalist, it was actually... Um, quite unique. It's a story that we've all, all wanted to tell that throughout this whole thing is it was a happy ending to, to something. It was a wholesome ending to a, a search that had been going on for so long. And that moment that Kelly found out that AJ was safe and well, I was there, I was just a few metres away from her. She, she hit the ground and she, she was just in tears. You could just imagine the, the wave of emotion that would have sw swept over her in that moment, having thought um, if she let herself believe that she mightn't see AJ ever again. I mean, she just couldn't couldn't stop saying, thank you, God, thank you, God. They, they were truly amazed and they were truly thankful. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Uh, and Tom, what are you hearing about how little AJ is doing tonight? 
Well, AJ is exactly where he needs to be. He's in hospital, uh, uh, getting observations. Uh, he's also right beside his mum, and that's the place that all of his family say that he, he's never separated from his mum. They're always side by side. He's always holding her hand. So those two back together, I think that's good for both of their mental well-beings. Um, incredibly, I mean, the injuries that that he had only a, a bit of nappy rash there with a few scratches a couple of cuts and bruises as a paramedic said that it was truly remarkable considering the the terrain that he was in uh, that he got away so easily so he's where he needs to be the family are at home celebrating uh, all in all it's certainly a, a wholesome conclusion to this search for a little boy who uh, everyone thought had just vanished one strong remarkable little boy okay thanks so much tom hartley Let's bring in senior police reporter Robert Avadia. Rob, this was the best outcome for everyone, but there are plenty of loose ends still for detectives to tie up tonight. Lots of loose ends. I mean, the, the investigation in terms of finding AJ is the highest priority is done. But uh, as you say, many loose ends. This is a really strange story. It has always been strange and the best result happened today. But there are still things to things, some things to to look for uh, at the moment, uh, not the least of which is, is how he could be found in such good condition after so many nights in cold, hard, rugged terrain. The fact that thermal imaging from the uh, police helicopter across three consecutive nights did not locate him uh, so close to home. Uh, there are questions the police want to ask of the family as well as to why it, it took them a couple of hours to mention this mysterious uh, white ute that they found. But that is not to suggest there is any suspicion on the family at all. It's just strange, uh, uh, Ange. There, there are things that police need to, to look at in terms of victimology, uh, whether somebody would target the family or not, uh, whether there is a reason. Uh, we do know uh, that there are historic bikey links for AJ's father. Now, that is not to suggest any wrongdoing now, but it's, it's a line the police cannot possibly uh, ignore going down the path of uh, whether somebody wanted to put pressure on the family and AJ was the byproduct of that. So, so many things still to look at, but for the moment, police are treating this as nothing more than a missing persons case. There is no evidence anywhere to suggest this isn't just misadventure, and it is exactly how it's played out. The, the little boy wanted off into the bush and it was miraculously found four days later. Obviously established an investigation in conjunction with our search operation. That investigation will continue and follow up to ensure that we've covered off on everything we can to understand what occurred over the past three days. So as you say, Rob, AJ is where he should be in hospital back with his family. Do you think this will be an ongoing investigation? I think it has to be. Uh, and to show the, the level of seriousness that uh, with which police have thrown their resources, I know there is a homicide inspector that has been up there for a couple of days now. So uh, those things aren't treated lightly. It's not just the, the things that you see out in the open, the searches we've seen with the police and SES over the past few days, Polair up above, but it's what is being done in the background too. So despite the happy result, there is nothing uh, to say that this hasn't been something sinister, that AJ was perhaps abducted. That is uh, certainly a line that the family has been pursuing ever since he went missing. They have assumed that he must have been kidnapped. Now, nothing to say that that is the case, but when a three-year-old boy potentially has been kidnapped, that is something police have to take very, very seriously and they will continue to look into that. One difficulty, of course, is that AJ himself is only three years old. He can't speak, so getting information from the boy himself will be obviously very, very difficult. Indeed. Okay, Robert Avadia in Sydney for us. Thank you.
Professor Robin Young is an autism expert from Flinders University. She joins us now from Adelaide. Professor, are there aspects of being autistic that can make a child like AJ more resilient? Because we're all sitting here thinking it's incredible that he lasted so long out on his own for days. Look, it's an amazing story and, and part of it might just be who AJ is and his personality, but some of it might be his personality characteristics um, and part of it being autism and having being autistic. So, for example, he might have been quite content on his own. He looks quite um, relaxed when he was being found, when he was found in drinking away at the water. He wasn't really, didn't seem anxious or scared that he wasn't around other people. And sometimes autistic people can be very comfortable in their own self. So he didn't seem to be looking or searching for other people, not to say that he's not missing them, but he was quite relaxed. Um, and other things, he might be, have been less responsive to pain and temperature. And often autistic people can be undersensitive to pain. And I know he had bites and things on him and he seemed to be in quite good spirits. So a remarkable story, certainly. Just incredible. What are some of the unique challenges, do you think, if you are searching for a child with autism? Well, um, autistic kids are more, much more likely um, to wander off than any other children. So searching for them becomes a challenge because um, he, you know, he was found in close proximity and I guess people were calling out of his, his name. But sometimes autistic people are not responsive to their name. He might have, um, he didn't see the, well, he might have seen the helicopter. Um, maybe a typically developing child might have been alerted to the fact that people were looking for him and come out and waved. Um, he seemed to be indifferent to the fact that um, of the fuss that he was creating um, and that may have been um, part of his resilience. What about when searchers finally found AJ? We saw those pictures of him drinking the water from the creek. Would they have had to approach him in a certain way not to scare him? Yes, it's really important that people understand autism uh, when they're searching for him. So there's been cases before where first responders have been alerted to the particular characteristics of that child. So um, like playing music or taking their favourite toy um, to making sure that the child isn't frightened um, and then try and run away or triggered by the fact of all the attention and the noise that the first responders might be making. So as we've heard from Rob, police are still trying to figure out exactly what happened to AJ over the past sort of four days. He is non-verbal. Is there any other way police can communicate with him, like getting him to draw what happened to try and understand what's happened over the past few days? Yeah, look, there's all sorts of ways that you can communicate with non-verbal autistic children. He might have quite good receptive language, so he might be able to point and show and follow. Um, so there might be some ways of getting information out of him. But I guess the, the most important point is you don't want to traumatise him anymore. Um, so, you know, it might just be best to, to, you know, not push him too hard at this point. What we saw those parents go through is just awful. What advice would you give for parents in these situations? Look, I think it's a really interesting question because we know that about 70% of childhood accidents among autistic people are from wandering away. <clears throat> and I guess we can we can look now and, and learn from this as well and not to cast blame because they're vulnerable to running, running away, but to identify why they might run away. Often they might go seeking their interests, like might be water or trains, and try and find, I guess, the root cause of what's happening. But prevention's better than cure. So um, being aware of the triggers, 
um, swimming lessons because often um, it results in accidental drowning. So I was terrified when I saw that there was dams on the property, um, even stop signs around the place to prevent the child knowing this is where I can't go, um, educating the child as well. Even tracking technology is something that could be used um, and secure locks and fencing around the home because wandering is a big problem um, for autistic people. Mm. Well, a remarkable and miraculous result tonight. Well, thank you so much, Robin Young, for your expertise. We are just one week away from peak case numbers in New South Wales. That's according to the government's new modelling. Hospitals are expected to see a surge in critical cases in early October. Does it worry us as a, as a critical care community? Of course it does. I'm really um, confident that we have plans in place We've been planning and preparing uh, for this increase in cases since the start of the pandemic last year. Uh, and this will be an incredibly difficult and challenging time uh, for our health system as we work through this. Tom Saker is live for us in Sydney. Tom, what else did the modelling tell us? Well, Ange, the modelling from the Burnett Institute indicates that New South Wales will surpass and peak at about 2,000 cases a day. Uh, obviously a big jump and that will be uh, in around two weeks time. Uh, obviously a big jump from what New South Wales has been recording daily even in the past week or so. Today New South Wales recorded 1,281 cases and six deaths. The most that New South Wales has recorded in a single 24-hour period is just over 1,500 cases and 12 deaths. But this modelling shows that by mid-October hospitalisations as a result of as a result of COVID could be around the 3,500 mark. And by early November, people in ICU from COVID could be about, could be around about the 950 mark. And in the words of the Burnett uh, Institute, that would officially overwhelm the ICU capacity. The good news is that there is a surge capacity plan in place, and that has involved the training and upskilling of around 2,000 nurses over the past 18 months who could cope with about 1,600 people maximum in ICU as an absolute last resort. Now, interestingly, all of this forecasting and peaking in around uh, mid-October to early November coincides exactly with when New South Wales is expected to hit the 70% double-dose vaccination target. And speaking to the media today, the Premier indicated that she does plan to go ahead with easing restrictions when we do get to 70% regardless of these ICU and hospitalisation numbers as a result of COVID. Ange? OK, Tom Saker in Sydney for us. Thank you. Now let's take a look at our vaccine tally. Australians have received just under 21 million doses of the COVID vaccine. 63% of us have now had our first jab, 38% are double dosed. 70% will be fully vaccinated within 56 days by the 1st of November. 80% of Australians will be fully vaccinated in 74 days by the 19th of November. Victoria has recorded 246 cases today. That means the state now has more than 1,500 active cases. Let's bring in Georgia Comensoli, who is in Melbourne for us tonight. Georgia, what is the latest there? 
Angela, last time we saw cases this high was well over a year ago, August 12th in 2020, when we recorded 266 cases. Our government and our health department now are not trying to bring these case numbers down, instead focusing on getting our vaccination rates up. Today, our health minister said that this outbreak was the pandemic of the unvaccinated, and that's because the majority of people who are in our hospital system, in our ICUs with COVID, weren't protected either, not vaccinated at all, or only receiving one dose of a vaccine. We are striving towards that 70% one dose target at the moment. We're sitting around 60% and that's when our Premier says that we should see some reprieve from our lockdown. Exactly what that is, well, we still don't know. Ange? Okay, let's have a listen now to the Victorian COVID commander, Jerome Weimar. And as our overall case numbers increase, we expect to see ongoing increases of people that are going to be hospitalised. This week we're bringing on more COVID dedicated COVID wards at a number of our health services. We have a plan going forward over the weeks and months ahead that should these case numbers not start to turn around, then we will continue to provide more capacity in our health services to, to look after people who become seriously ill. Okay, Georgia, there's also a specialised hotline that's open today to help get Year 12 students appointments to get the jab. And that's right. The hotline opened at 8am this morning and like with many of our vaccination appointment systems, it was inundated within hours. Over 50,000 VCE students trying to get an appointment for a vaccination and that group also includes their examiners, assessors and individual teachers who need to be there during the exam period. They've been told that they need to be fully vaxxed before they sit their end of year exams. Those vaccination hubs, the priority hubs have been set up at a few select schools around Melbourne. They'll open from tomorrow and they're hoping to give that group at least one dose before the end of the week. Ange? Okay, Georgia Comensoli for us, thank you. Queensland's hotel quarantine system is back in action after the state refused to accept anyone, even its own residents, because it was stretched to capacity. It comes with some changes for domestic arrivals. Georgie Chumley is in Brisbane for us tonight. Georgie, what are the details? Good evening, Ange. Well, previously, if you had the means and the money, you could hop on a plane and go straight to hotel quarantine in Queensland. But that has all changed. You now have to apply online and get a border exemption and a border pass. And those are only going out to two camps of people, returning Queenslanders or people permanently relocating to the Sunshine State. And they will have to prove it. The Deputy Commissioner, Steve Golcheski, explained the rules earlier today. They have to apply online to get the exemption um, as either a returning Queenslander or a person that's relocating to Queensland. And then when they present to our border, they must come in via air. They have to be uh, have a border pass declaration as well still. They must have that as well. And they must be able to demonstrate um, evidence to the satisfaction of the officers as they come in that they can prove that they are a Queensland resident. 149 people relocating to Queensland have been granted exemptions as of this morning. Just over 100 Queenslanders returning, but we know there are plenty more stranded over the border still, so we expect that number to increase over the coming days and the weeks. And Georgie, Queensland health authorities remain on high alert despite no new cases today. That's right, there's still a venue of concern, a nail salon, where a COVID-positive truck driver and a four-year-old attended. There were 10 other people when they were there, but only one person checked in, and contact tracers are still yet to get in contact with three or four people that were there. The concern is that they may have contracted the virus and they could be out and about in the community spreading it. But there is some good news for 900 families tonight. They were told that they had to isolate for 14 days. They were initially deemed close contacts 
Oaks at Windaroo State School. But they, on at 6pm tonight, were told that they uh, they had had their risk assessment lowered and that they were out allowed out this evening. So very good news for those families able to head back to school and to work tomorrow. And it's good news for the rest of Queensland where it seems the risk of an imminent lockdown is diminishing. Yeah, good news indeed. OK, thanks so much, Georgie. Friends and family are tonight comforting the pregnant widow of a surfer killed by a great white shark on the north coast of New South Wales. Timothy Thompson leaves behind his wife of six months who's expecting their first child. His friends tried everything they could to stop the bleeding, but the injuries were too severe. It's so sad to... just to think that it would happen to someone like him because he was so amazing. He's just left so much behind. And he was so excited. Just for what, everything, I don't know, life. Melbourne influencer Nadia Bartel and three of her lockdown party guests have been hit with more than $21,000 worth of fines. The group was caught breaching state home orders in a video that showed Bartel snorting lines of a white powder. Police say they're still looking into possible drug offences. New South Wales Police are reportedly focusing on a new suspect in the disappearance of William Tyrrell. The Daily Telegraph is reporting that police are planning to interview the person of interest after uncovering fresh information about the case. This Thursday marks seven years since three-year-old William disappeared on the New South Wales north coast. In 2016, the state offered a $1 million reward for information. Australia's trade war with China could continue for years. Eye-watering export tariffs have already cost our economy around $1 billion. Here's the Federal Treasurer speaking today. They have targeted our agricultural and resources sector with measures affecting a range of our products, wine, seafood, barley and coal. Despite China's wide-ranging actions, our economy has continued to perform very strongly. Political reporter Rob Scott is in Canberra for us. Rob, the Treasurer made it clear that it's not all doom and gloom. He has, Ange, and he says it may come as a surprise to many, but the impact on Australia's economy has been modest. China started imposing those tr trade strikes on our exports in retaliation to Scott Morrison's calls for an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus last year. But Josh Frydenberg says the economy has withstood the political attack and continued to perform strongly. In the year to June, exports to China did fall by almost $5.5 billion, but producers have been able to find new markets, increasing exports to other countries by around $4.5 billion. But the wine industry is one that hasn't been able to rebound. We were a $1.2 billion export market to China. Look, we've done our best to diversify, but it's really hard with those high-valued red wine to, uh, to get that quickly. So we're struggling. Um, so it's causing a lot of pain to the industry at the moment. And Rob, the Prime Minister's travels have been under scrutiny. Yes, he made a quick trip from Canberra to Sydney and back over the weekend so he could, he could spend Father's Day with his daughters. But with countless families separated by border closures, that has angered a lot of people. The ACT, along with half of the country, as we know, is in lockdown and has banned people from coming here from Sydney without an exemption. The PM was given one by the Territory's Chief Health Officer, allowing him to attend Parliament House today. 
which is not really that unusual for federal MPs who are considered essential workers and are allowed to leave their homes for work. It's understood the PM will have to restrict his movements, though, and have frequent COVID tests. Mm. Ange? OK, Rob's got in Canberra for us. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. should have their paid parental leave increased and more evenly split according to new recommendations. Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton is here with me. Gemma, this is a recommendation in a new report. What do they say the benefits are? Well, they cite a range of economic and social benefits. This report was written by the Grattan Institute. Uh, starting with economic benefits, they say it'll cost around $600 million a year to implement, but then there'll be around $900 million a year in benefits. And most of them come through the additional contribution women, mothers, will be able to make to the workforce. Now, in addition to the economic contribution they make, they're also saying it would be great for mothers to have less pressure and more ability to balance their career and their childcare opportunities and obligations. They go further, though, and say it is important for a child, if they do have two parents, to have more access to both of them, particularly in the early days, because you can form the foundation for the rest of the relationship throughout the childhood. But then particularly for men, in Australia, we do have one of the least generous parental leave policies, particularly for fathers, in the entire world. Uh, the Australian man takes around 20% of the average leave of dads in other developed countries. So they're saying if we had a better system in place, men would be less reluctant to take it, more less worried about what it would do to their career, it would be more normalised. And there would just be tremendous benefits from spending more time or rewarding time with their families. So all in all, they, they see a host of benefits. What they're proposing is six weeks for a mother, six weeks for a father, 12 weeks to be shared however they like it. And if parents do all of that, they get a bonus two weeks. They haven't forgotten single parents. They're proposing they get that whole 26 weeks. Okay, now on another topic, Spotlight caused a bit of controversy by saying, telling their workers that if they don't get vaccinated, they miss out on their end of year bonuses. Yes, we are starting to see all sorts of companies and businesses uh, think about plans to try and get their workers vaccinated. Most businesses really want their workers vaccinated, if nothing else, to protect their own workforce. Many of these are customer facing businesses, so they want to protect their customers as well. And they just want the economy reopened and back to normal, and we're all striving towards that 80% target. This was quite novel. Uh, it wasn't something that Spotlight announced. It was something that was leaked from an internal message to staff. But we'll see more and more initiatives, I'm sure. Uh, Telstra today came out and said that they've just started a one-week consultation uh, for their staff and union members um, to get fully vaccinated, particularly their customer-facing ones, by November. OK, great. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. A former top aide to Prince Charles has declined to answer questions about allegations he secured an honour for a Saudi donor. Sarah Greenolch joins us live now from London. Sarah, this is a royal scandal which shows no sign of going away. 
Yeah, and good evening. That is right, especially after the developments over the past few hours. The CEO of campaign group Republic says he has personally now reported Prince Charles and his former advisor Michael Fawcett to the police and a former British government minister and critic of the royal family says he has written a letter to Scotland Yard requesting a criminal investigation. Now, Michael Fawcett uh, is the advisor who Prince Charles once referred to as indispensable. He is accused of cash for access following this investigation by Britain's Sunday Times newspaper. Basically, they have evidence showing that Fawcett offered to fix a knighthood and help with uh, an application for citizenship for this very wealthy Saudi businessman in exchange for donations to Prince Charles's charity, the Prince's Foundation, millions of dollars uh, towards this charity. Prince Charles is said to have given this CBE honour to the Saudi tycoon at a private ceremony here at Buckingham Palace in November 2016. Critics of uh, the future king say there is no way that he wouldn't have known about this agreement. Now, Michael Fawcett has temporarily stepped down from his role as chief executive of the Prince's Foundation while uh, this investigation is carried out. He himself, Ange, is a pretty controversial figure. He has worked for the palace for a very long time, starting out as a footman for the Queen when he was just 17. He then became a personal valet and advisor to Prince Charles. Uh, he has resigned twice over the years during other scandals, including allegations of bullying and allegations of selling royal gifts. He was twice reinstated. Perhaps not surprisingly, the palace has not commented publicly on this uh, cash for access claim. Ange? Okay. Thank you, Sarah Greenwich. The Taliban claims to have captured Panjshir Valley, the last province holding out after the fall of Kabul. Witnesses say thousands of Taliban fighters overran the region overnight, but resistance fighters have denied the claim, saying they will continue fighting until justice prevails. And the Taliban is denying it killed a police officer who was eight months pregnant who'd been working at a prison. Witnesses say the woman's husband and children were tied up and forced to watch as she was beaten and shot dead in her home. The Taliban says it had no involvement and is now investigating. And six Palestinian prisoners have escaped a high-security jail in Israel through a hole in the floor. Israeli security forces launched a search operation after farmers tipped off police about suspicious figures seen in their fields. Police then alerted officials at the prison who discovered that the men had gone. The country is confronting uncomfortable truths tonight with the Prime Minister telling a women's safety summit that Australia has a problem with domestic violence and progress on the issue has been slow. Right now, too many Australian women do not feel safe and too often they are not safe and that is not OK. There is no excuse and sorry doesn't cut it. Survivors' advocates say one of the most pressing matters is housing for women fleeing abuse. Kate Colvin is a spokesperson with campaign group Everybody's Home. Kate, when we talk about women's safety, how important is housing in guaranteeing it? Look, it's absolutely critical because the fact is that a lot of women um, flee family violence and come to homeless services. Every year we have 39,000 women um, coming to homeless services seeking long-term accommodation and only um, 1,200 women actually get that long-term accommodation. Others are turned away and what that means really sadly is that um, over 7,000 women feel like they don't have any option but to return to a violent home and of course then they're terribly at risk.
and um, their children are terribly at risk also. So, you know, we do need housing to be part of the picture so women have a safe place to go to. Your organisation partners with the Salvation Army, Anglicare, Mission Australia. What are you seeing at the coalface, particularly over the past 18 months or so with the pressures households are facing with COVID? Look, COVID has, has made a number of changes in this space. One of the things that's happened is that there has been this increase in domestic and family violence. So, um, you know, more than a 6% increase in women um, coming to homeless services um, for that reason. You know, a 9% increase in people um, calling the police for domestic and family violence. But um, the, the other thing that's happened is that there's been huge increases in rents in, in locations that haven't been as affected by lockdowns. And that means when you're out there competing in the rental market, if you're a woman fleeing family violence with children, you're competing perhaps against, you know, professional couples who've moved up from the city. So we've got services who are responding to women and children fleeing family violence who really just have a, um, a huge number of women coming and they can't um, move them through into housing in the rental market because of that competitive environment. So that's where we need the federal government to step up and get more affordable rentals into the market by investing in social housing. Well, it's an important message. Thank you so much, Kate Colvin, from Everybody's Home for joining us. Thank you. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Andrew. It was almost green across the board in Asia today, and that's despite Aussie share markets spending most of the day underwater, weighed down by more major companies going ex-dividend, including Fortescue, whose share price receded 10%. Wall Street closed out last week on a sour note that was on the back of disappointing jobs numbers. Economists were expecting around 700,000 jobs to have been created last month. In fact, it was just 200,000. US markets are closed for the Labor day holiday tonight. And after being on a solid streak for most of the last fortnight, oil is retracing some of those gains in this session. While the Aussie dollar is sitting tight, that's after regaining some ground over the weekend. Ange. Now, thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Angela Cox. Good night.